Well, I hate to say Elton John after a prayer like that, but Elton John. (laughs) At 71, he is still selling out concerts and getting a premium price for his tickets. It seems that in 1972, he was carefree and happy. Because, you know, while the other kids were rocking around the clock, he was hopping and bopping to the yeah, feet, couldn't keep still, never knew me a better time, and I guess I never will. It was apparently true, because in 1984, he sang a different song. Sad songs say so much. He writes, I guess there are times when we all need to share a little pain, and ironing out the rough spots is the hardest part because memories remain. And it's times like these when we all need to hear the radio because from the lips of some old singer, we, share, we can share the troubles we already know. If someone else is suffering enough to write it down, when every single word makes sense, it's easier to have those songs around. So turn them on, turn them on, turn on those sad songs. When all hope is gone, sad songs say so much. And so Elton went from dancing feet that couldn't keep still to pain and rough uh, spots and suffering. And since the song reached number five on the charts, I'm assuming that that song resonated with a lot of people. Probably resonates with us. Because it sounds an awful lot like life the way we experience it. We dance some, for sure. But we have a lot of rough spots. Pain and suffering and sadness. What do you do with it in your life? The hurt, the pain. Elton John didn't offer much hope, except in a a misery loves company sort of way. Well, when you're sad, just turn on the radio and know that someone else is sad as well. But because of Christ, you and I are different. What you and I do with sorrow and suffering and pain can make a difference. The lives of people around us, for Jesus' sake. How we handle those times can be light in the darkness of our own souls, and it can be light in the world that produces and then has to experience that suffering together. So as Jesus says to us this morning, you and I must be the light of the world. That in mind, let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. When you found your place in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we can hear read the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. How we treasure it in our lives and the light that it brings to us. 
the way it points us in, ultimately because it points us to you, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for that. We thank you for your spirit. Call on you now, Spirit of God, to give us understanding of your word, who you are, who you want us to be, how you want us to be it in the world. Bring about the change that needs to take place so that we can be these kinds of people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, when we were together in this passage, we talked about what it means to be the salt of the earth. If you're interested, that's online for you to hear. This morning, we are going to talk about the companion to salt, which is light, because Jesus says to us here, you are the light of the world. So once again, the Lord, because he is a benevolent God who has a kind will toward those he has created, because he is a beneficent God who acts lovingly toward all he has created, because he is a God of common grace that allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives to the world what he knows the world so desperately needs. And this benevolent, beneficent God knows the world needs light. Because he knows that this world is a very dark place. Back in chapter 4, Matthew quoted Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 when he wrote, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So as God sees the world, this world, our world, is a place of darkness and death. It's a place that needs light. In Scripture, Light represents a variety of what is true and real. Light represents for us God's revelation, God's truth, God's wisdom, God's instruction, His perfect law. And so the psalmist writes in 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Light also represents the presence of God. We know the story of Moses. When he was in the presence of God, his face literally shone with the light of the reflected glory of God. In the Old Testament, light also represents the Messiah and his people. And so in Isaiah 42, God speaks of the coming Messiah and he says, I will give you, the Messiah, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Charles Carls writes, Throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, the shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of God among the nations. And so now here's Jesus who is the Messiah, teaching on the side of the mountain. He is the light of the world. He is the light that has overcome the darkness. And as light, he sends his disciples on mission 
together to be the light of the world. So if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Christ, if you are his follower, you are light. To be a disciple means to be light. It is what a disciple is. As one commentator noted to say, well, I'm a disciple, but I'm not really light. Would be like saying, I'm water, but I'm not wet. Or I'm a fire, but I'm not hot. No, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are the light of Christ in this world. I hope you believe that. Right where God puts us, among the nations. Now this is something we know. And I don't think that I have to convince anybody here this morning that the call of Jesus on our life is to be the light of the world. It's not like you're sitting there thinking, hmm, light of the world. I never thought about that before. No, you have thought about it. You already know it's Jesus' call on your life. Our problem, at least my problem, is how to be this. That's our struggle. How are we to be light in the world? Usually we think about these verses in terms of evangelism. We are light by speaking the words of the gospel to people. Absolutely. Something we should be engaged in. But sometimes when we speak to people the words of the gospel, it develops in us this tacit us and them mindset. Us and them. We are believers. They are not yet believers. And all that's true. And for sure, there is a great divide that separates those whom Christ has moved out of the kingdom of darkness and put in his kingdom of light. There's a difference, a separation between the people in the kingdom of light and those who remain in the kingdom of darkness. So we need to continue to speak the gospel to people. But this morning, since we can not possibly exhaust all the ways that we can be light in this dark world, I'm going to focus on just one way, one way that we might be light. And this way, hopefully, will create in us a mindset of with them, with the world, instead of a mindset of us and them. Because I think we are most effective with people when we're actually with them, when we actually live and experience life with them instead of distancing ourselves from them. To share on, to focus on what we share in common instead of focusing on the things that separate us. And so I'm calling this way this morning, light in lament. This is what I want to talk about this morning, life in lament. You know what lament is. To lament is to express sadness and grief. A lament is also a thing, a song, a poem that you write to express sadness or grief. Because sadness and sorrow and grief, it's a reality in all of our lives. Now listen, I will never forget that through our 19 years, 19 years as a church, we have regularly been described as a joyful church over and over through the years. Visitors have said to me, there's such a beautiful spirit of joy in this place. And I would agree with that, don't you? Joyful congregation. And sometimes we were ridiculed by our detractors, more the proper Presbyterian 
types who would call us the happy clappy church. Oh, they're so superior. And you know what? I don't regret that. But here's what I do wonder. I wonder if we haven't fully expressed the fullness of a rightly functioning body. I worked on this sermon a lot this week while I was sitting with my mom. And I continued to see the difficulties that come from having an entire side of your body that does not function. And I thought about all the lack, all the things she cannot do, the atrophy of the muscles that are supposed to be strong. And it made me begin to think that maybe there's not wholeness in our spiritual body without lament. Apart from lament, part of us may atrophy, spiritually speaking. And not just our lives as individuals, but also our corporate body, our family gathered here, the body of Christ. Since the world does not function as it should, as God created it to function, there will always be reason to lament. There's always going to be a reason to lament in this world. And so for how many people is sorrow and grief and brokenness, whether it be physical or emotional or relational, for how many is it an ever-present reality? And how do you worship with a heavy heart? And how can you come to church and not feel excluded When you think everybody else is fine and okay and eager to worship because we never lament. We can feel isolated and alone in a crowd. But here's the reality. Nobody is completely okay. You know that, don't you? Look around the room. Honestly, look around the room. No matter what you think of people seated around you, nobody here is completely okay. And so unfortunately, the church has become a place of false face. It's a place of false face. People who pretend to have it all together. You cannot have it all together. You cannot have it all together, not in a world like ours. So how many people, maybe some of you here this morning, believe that you have to check the grief and the sadness and the sorrow and the suffering and the confusion, you have to check that at the door of the sanctuary, only to pick it up on the way back out, because you believe there's no place for lament and praise and worship. Because you believe that God doesn't want to see it. Because you believe God doesn't want to look on it. Because you believe others don't want to see it and others don't want to look on it. And what is the failure to lament? What does it communicate about the Christian life? Is the successful Christian life Free of grief and sorrow and brokenness that leads to lament? How could that possibly be true? When Jesus says to us, in this world you will have trouble. And so we have to give expression to that grief. We never want to communicate that you have to leave your sorrows and struggles and trials at the door or that you are excluded from worship because you lament. No, your lament It's part of who you are. And if God is not the kind of God that meets you in your lament, why worship Him? The people of Israel 
sang their songs of lament in their worship service. You and I could be such a great light for the world if we knew how to enter into lament and if we knew how to turn true lament Godward and if we could respond and to react to it with a Christ focus. That would truly make us light in this world. That would make us light to this world. The hymnal of God's people, you know, it's called the Psalter, the Psalms. And it was their hymnal. When they went to worship, they sang out of the book of Psalms. And listen to this. Over one-third of the Psalms are songs of lament. Some consider the number even higher. They believe that 65 Of 150 psalms are songs of lament. And so when when God's people gathered for worship, they were singing songs that expressed individual grief and groaning and sorrow and sadness and anxiety and distress and confusion. So it seems to me that if we're thinking proportionately, that sorrow and sadness and struggle should not be relegated to a shadowy corner, only to come out occasionally, or better yet, rarely. If the number of psalms of lament in Scripture are any indication, it's a big part of life. Death and sickness and broken relationships. They're natural tragedies. Storms, droughts, floods. They're the effects of political And governmental brokenness. And the psalms of lament in God's word address all of those. They express anguish over all kinds of brokenness. And remember that the psalms are written by people of faith. People who love God. People who are just trying to figure out how to be people of faith. Both individually and corporately. In a world that unfortunately provides so many opportunities to lament. Think about Jesus for a minute. The one who spoke these words, if you know Isaiah 53 very well, then you can fill in the blank. He was a man of acquainted with a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's Jesus' life. Grief and sorrow. But never believe that songs of lament are just sad songs, a.k.a. Elton John, that don't move us beyond sadness. Songs of lament are not just spiritual venting or ranting or spewing. Neither do songs of lament allow you or me to wallow in our misery or self-pity. They don't. The power of the songs of lament is the lifting effect that they have. Their purpose is not to listen to sad songs for the sake of listening to sad songs, but to transport us. That's why they are light. That's why we are light when we lament in a broken world. The power of the lament is the very recognizable pattern found in them. So in order to to lift us up this morning and transport us, let's walk through 
this pattern, very distinct pattern found in the songs of lament. The first element of the pattern is that songs of lament begin with an address. Psalm 22, it's a famous psalm and it opens famously with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, laments are addressed to God. And that's huge. Because it shows us that we have one to whom we can take our complaints. See, I know the deal because I know myself. And too often we exclude God and we go straight to others. We address our complaints to others who usually don't have any power to do anything about them anyway. Do you do that? Please don't leave me alone up here. Say yes. Instead, we should take them to God because we know He is a God who hears and a God who cares. Because we know He's a God who welcomes. He's a benevolent God. He's a beneficent God. He's a God who is powerful and He will always act in our lives in accordance with His perfect sovereign will. So what light we display when you and I know where to go with our laments. What light we display when we show the world they too have a place to go. Someone they can address. You are the light of the world when you address your lament to God. Oh God, my God, only you, God. When Jesus asked his disciples if they wanted to join the exodus of people who were flocking not to him but away from him, when he called them to deep commitment and intimate fellowship with him. Peter answered for the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You and you only. So knowing there is one to whom you can address your lament, it's light for your darkness, knowing you can go to God. It's light for those around you as they see you address your suffering or brokenness to God. Martin Luther wrote this about the Psalms of Lament. What is the greatest thing in the Psalter but this earnest speaking amid the storm winds of every kind? Where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than in Psalms of Lamentation? There again, you look into the hearts of the saints as into death. Yes, as into hell itself. When they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter could so depict for your fear or hope. And that they speak these words to God and with God. This, I repeat, is the best thing of all. We can address God. Is that good news? The second element in the pattern of lament is a complaint of some sort. Psalm 12, we read, Save, O Lord, there's the address, and here's the complaint. For the godly one is gone, and the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. This is a complaint. And to complain about the condition of the culture as the psalmist experiences it. And if we're honest, 
we might lodge that same complaint, right? You know, double speak, lying tongues. Did someone say midterm elections? I didn't. Must have been Bill Simpson from his house. Don't tell Bill I said that. I should never go off script. It always gets me in trouble. The fact that we complain is light. Because we can take that complaint to God. And that we can take that complaint to God. Reveals that we are in a relationship with Him. What kind of God? Especially if He really is the great ruler. Would allow any complaint at all. From our experience... Rulers of great power don't have to listen to complaints. All they have to say is, off with his head, right? So complaining makes us think about our relationship with God. And that's light for our souls. We're in a relationship with God. It makes those who hear us complain to God. Think about the relationship that we have with God, and there is light in that for their souls. Because God is not a God who does not want to hear us. He's not a God who stifles our expression. If he were, 65 psalms would have to be excised from his holy word. But they're not. And who preserved them for us to read? God did. Here they are to be read and sung in worship. What light it is for the world when they see us in a relationship with God in the same struggles that we share with men. Walter Brueggemann, well-respected scholar on the Psalms, he writes, What is said to Yahweh may be scandalous, but whatever must be said about the human situation must be said directly to Yahweh who is Lord of the human experience and partner with us in it. Yahweh is expected and presumed to receive the fullness of Israel's speech. What light to each other and to the world of the graciousness of God that we can complain to Him. Following the address and the complaint is the third element, and that's request. Psalm 44, the people cry out together, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Psalm 22, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. What light there is for our souls, for the world, that we have a God of whom we can make requests in the midst of our brokenness. Jesus is going to say in just a little while in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Request of the Lord. I don't need to say anything else about that. The fourth element in the pattern of lament after the request is affirmation. It's affirmation 
that God can be trusted. This again is from Psalm 12. The words of the Lord are like pure silver, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. And so the past goodness and the past faithfulness of God in the darkness of the past gives us hope that we will have light again and again and again in the future. What he has done, he will be faithful to do again. And so yesterday's suffering and a song of lament informs today's suffering and tomorrow's suffering and the suffering of the day after that. God does not abandon us or forsake us, even in the midst of suffering. And so the affirmation of that gives us hope and makes us light. Affirming the faithfulness of God gives us hope and it makes us light in this world. And the fifth and the final element in a song of lament is praise. They end with praise. Psalm 13 begins with these words. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's how Psalm 13 begins. And this is how Psalm 13 ends. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And so there's the clear pattern of the lament. Its power is clear because it does not leave us mourning. It begins with sorrow. But when we work our way through each of the elements of the lament, it ends in praise. And that's what Jesus calls his disciples to here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are not wrong this morning. If we define our good works as what we do in the midst of suffering and brokenness, and tragedy, and grief. Because of Christ, we, as Scripture says, do not grieve as others who have no hope. This is the light that you and I have to give. This kind of life, light giving, is, is so effective. It's so effective because the world is so messed up, and we experience the messiness of the world together with everyone else because the rain does fall on the just and the unjust. And you and I are light in how we react to the mess. We're light because we know who to address. And so we address him. Oh God, my God. We complain to him. We make requests of him. We affirm his faithful character and then we praise him. My mom is working so diligently to wake up those muscles that have atrophied because of the stroke so she can use them again. And so maybe we need to wake up this neglected practice of lament. It's so powerful. Why? We, we, we should stop believing. We should stop believing that it's lamenting is something Christians should not do. At least not if you're a good Christian. Or that it's something you should do all alone. Where no one can hear you or judge you. God's people lamented together. You have the wrong view 
of the, what the Christian life is if you believe there is no place for lament in it. Or if you somehow believe that nothing lamentable should ever come into the life of a believer. It does. And when you and I lament what is legitimately lamentable in our lives and in the world, in a biblical way, we become light. Light in lament. Light in a dark world. And people will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Particularly, Lord, when we pause to think about these songs of lament and the sheer number of them and the proportion they take in the book of Psalms, the hymnal of your people. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that they are. So clearly they reveal that we can be in relationship with you without fear. We can take you up on your offer to pour out our hearts before you. Father, I pray that you would give hope this morning and light to those in this room who are discouraged or sad or grieving. There's sickness people are dealing with, Lord, suffering of different kinds. Lord, there are people in relational woes, their heart broken over some relationship, parental, spousal, with, with their children. Lord, brokenness, it doesn't go away. It's their day after day after day. All sorts of grief, Lord. Pray that you would teach us to address our griefs to you. We would request of you hope and healing. And that, Lord, as we look at your character, and that's what we have to do. We have to stop looking at ourselves and look at you and who you are and who you've always been. How you've always proven yourself faithful to your people. Forever you will be faithful. And, Lord, allow that to turn our lament finally into praise because we trust you so deeply. Because we acknowledge and believe in your goodness and your faithfulness and your benevolence and your beneficence. So Lord, use lament to transport us. And Lord, as those around us observe our lives and our lament and our relationship, may we be your light to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.